Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spaceport America podcast with me, Alice Carruth. I'm the Public Information Officer for the New Mexico Spaceport Authority, the state agency that manages Spaceport America. On today's episode, I'm joined by my colleague and General Counsel for Spaceport America, Melissa Kemper-Force. Melissa, you are considered one of the world's leading experts on space law. Can you kind of explain to everybody what is space law? Well, space law is a big subject, um, but it's very generally divided into sort of two layers. There's an international layer, which is very important um, because it sets the guidelines for what individual countries can do. And the second layer is what's called a national or domestic um, layer of space law. And that comprises the statute, the U.S. statutes, uh, the regulations that are, you know, the rules uh, that are set to um, uh, carry out the intent of the statutes. And then a broad uh, a category of best practices and guidelines that are set up by various agencies of the U.S. government, including NASA, the DOD, et cetera. And so it's very wide ranging. It's very detailed and complex, uh, but the people in the industry are generally pretty familiar with them. Um, the first uh, layer that I initially mentioned is the international layer, and that is primarily comprised of five international treaties. Uh, the very first uh, space law treaty that was um, that was ever signed by the UN um, is the uh, space law is the Outer Space Treaty, and after that was a treaty on um, retrieval of objects and astronauts because. As you may know, back in the day, it was a big issue that an astronaut may, from another country may accidentally have to be ejected or land on the national territory of another potentially adversary country. So all the countries of the UN got to, the spacefaring countries got together and uh, uh, drew up a treaty specifically on that issue that arranged for the safe return of astronauts and um, objects, including spacecraft and things like that. And then there's a liability convention, which detailed all the processes and procedures required if two spacefaring countries got into an accident or collided, how that kind of um, uh, uh, dispute would be uh, resolved. Uh, and not just uh, um, uh, space accidents, but also accidents that happen on Earth as well. Those are, would also be included in the liability convention. Also for registration of space objects, um, including spacecraft, uh, launch, launch vehicles, etc. And finally, the Moon Treaty, which is a little bit um, controversial because uh, it, it only has a couple dozen, maybe a few more by now, but uh, uh, signatories to it, not including the U.S. Um, this was the very last treaty that was ever negotiated for space law. Um, the U.S. did not sign it for a number of very technical and political reasons that 
I don't think we need to get into here, but it's a very important treaty because it purports to uh, dictate the rules by which outer space resources can be um, used and, you know, what the obligations are in terms of uh, uh, moon mining or asteroid mining, uh, what those rules are. And it's not, it's the, the outer space treaty is not very clear about that. And so it took about a, a 10 years to negotiate the moon treaty, which did set up a uh, procedure to take care of that. However, it had, because the United States didn't sign it, uh, most of the other spacefaring countries didn't sign it. So that's, that's, it, it is an international space law treaty, but it's, uh, it doesn't have, have the, um, doesn't have the signature of the major space powers. So it's not that useful. I'm fascinated by the background of all these that are establishing it. And I'm assuming due to your background, you must have kind of an interesting way of how you got into this. Now, you know, when did you start becoming interested in space law or in space in general? Well, I was always interested in space. My, um, like, like most high schools, my high school also had, um, at the, at, you know, for graduating seniors, predicting what they would do. And it's, it's very strange, but I was predicted to be orbiting around the earth. And goodness knows if they intended that to mean I was somewhat spacey or if I had declared what my future occupation would be. But, uh, one, one way or another, my interest in space uh, has always existed. Um, what I got my degree in engineering at the University of Missouri at Columbia, which is where I grew up, and uh, in chemical engineering, and subsequently uh, went to law school. And I was very, very lucky in having friends already that I knew who were space lawyers. I wanted to be a space lawyer, but Back in the day, in the 90s, um, if you were lucky enough to graduate with, um, with um, uh, a ranking that was relatively high, they paid you a lot of money to go to a big law firm. And that is how I started my legal career in working in a large law firm. And back in the 90s, uh, the mid-90s, that was primarily litigation. So I came up in law as a litigator um, uh, and and I eventually became a litigation partner in a big law firm in Los Angeles. Uh, but that's not to say that I abandoned my interest in space law. I still kept track of it. Um, space law at that time was not a profession where there were jobs per se. There were well-known um, space lawyers who were famous in the 70s and 80s. Um, but they, but the fact that I know them by name uh, just goes to show how rare they were. There were not very many people who could make their living as a space lawyer per se. They had positions in the government with NASA, with one of the big contractors, but it's, this wasn't a profession. So in defense of myself for becoming a litigator initially, um, there wasn't really a, a career path as a space lawyer. Nevertheless, that's what I wanted to be. Um, so 
I did keep up with all the space law colloquium and the, um, uh, you know, what, how, how the space treaties were developing and how state practice was developing after we uh, reached the treaties. And I was studying the domestic law, that is the U.S. national statutes and the regulations on um, space law, just because I was interested, um, not because I had a client that was involved in any of that kind of litigation. Um, but I was aware of all the developments, um, the legal developments in space law. Um, I went in-house for an international organization in charge of all of their uh, claims. And that's when I decided that I wanted to actually go for it. And this was um, 2009, 2010, <coughs> when I was uh, accepted for a program in Europe. Um, to get my LLM in space law. And so I moved to Europe um, and I studied air and space law uh, for intensely for the next year. And let me back up. There were two other uh, um, uh, institutions in the world that had space law programs. That's the University of Nebraska um, and McGill University. And I chose to go to Leiden University in um, the Netherlands. And I wanted to do that intentionally to develop a European perspective or not necessarily a European perspective, but just to be taken out of the world of US centric education. Um, not that I thought it was inferior in any respect, but if I was going to develop a true expertise in um, space law, I wanted it to be an international one, not one that was born of uh, the needs and desires and goals of the specific country that I was in. And um, it, it, I believe that I benefited from that perspective. Um, so, uh, that kind of brings me sort of up, up, I guess, up to speed on my education. Um, I, when I returned to the U.S., um, I worked for NOAA um, <coughs> and the Office of Space Commerce, uh, as it's known now. Back then, it was the Office of Space Commercialization. And um, then I uh, returned to Los Angeles because by that point, I'd met um, a lot of companies and startups um, who needed advice. And that is what I was doing until I got a call from the spaceport in uh, 2015 or 2016. Went through a series of, of interviews with the governor's office, with this office, and um, eventually this is, this is, I ended up moving to Las Cruces. So you cover quite a spectrum of things working for the New Mexico Spaceport Authority. Can you kind of run us through what an average thing you're doing every day? And I know it changes a lot. And I think it's kind of important for people to understand the different types of law you're dealing with on a daily basis. Yes, it is quite broad. So just like um, um, any big um, facility, whether it's space uh, related or not, they're always going to have um, 
sort of the same roster of problems, employment issues, uh, workplace accidents, trip and falls. There's also going to always going to be insurance uh, issues. There are going to be real estate issues, especially if like the spaceport, we are growing and developing uh, as we go. There's construction issues, um, intellectual property. There are a whole slate, landlord-tenant law, that uh, of issues that are not just specific to to this to uh, a space launch facility, but are true of any large organization. So, I oversee all of those. Um, but more specific to the the space industry. Um, uh, I also ensure that the regulatory requirements and com compliance with the statutes and the regulations and best practices are also followed, which can be a murky area because um, some but not all of those rules are required to be followed by the site, that is the spaceport. Some are specifically applicable to the launch customer. Um, for example, our, our tenant, Virgin Galactic. They have a separate set of regulations and laws that apply to them, but there is some overlap and there is, um, if, in the Venn diagram, there is an intersection of the two. And so where, the, where we intersect, I also have to ensure that uh, our customers, our space customers, and we are um, uh, acting in accord with each other and one is not doing something that is inimical to the other or inconsistent. So I, we ensure that all of those um, regulations are followed and also our launch license is predicated on a number of things, including an environmental impact statement, um, which anybody in, in the business knows that that's a, a critically important document. So not only does the uh, launch license that we, uh, that we have depend on compliance with the space laws and regulations, but it also requires that we comply with all the, the environmental and cultural resource requirements in the EIS as well, which also includes all of the, the space uh, criteria from the space statutes and regulations. But um, just having to ensure compliance with our launch license um, encompasses a lot of those things, environmental, cultural, and space. So that forms a large part of the space um, material that we have to oversee. And finally, is the export uh, export laws, uh, ITAR and the EAR uh, with the Department of, of Commerce. We have to ensure compliance with those um, to the extent that we uh, deal in in any way with any um, items on the munitions list uh, for ITAR or on the list um, attributable to the Department of Commerce. Um, so those are also compliance issues as well.
So you touched on ITAR and we talk about it a lot within the industry, but for people that don't work in aerospace, that's the International Treaty on Arms Regulations. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about why things fall under a treaty on arms and munitions when they're going to space? Basically, the ITAR is a, is a really uh, complex subject, but at, at, on, on its very surface, it's designed to... Um, keep those in the industry uh, or dealing with um, any partners internationally from disclosing information pertaining to certain items that are on um, a technically sensitive equipment list. And at least initially, those included in their entirety satellites and, you know, launch facilities, launch, you know, rockets, spacecraft, anything having to do with that. Um, In the past 15 or 20 years, some of those restrictions have eased up and some of those um, uh, equipment and vehicles have been placed on a um, a less a, a list of less sensitivity, and that is headed up by the Department of Commerce. And these are are, are primarily uh, space industry vehicles and um, uh, products uh, that don't necessarily pose as great a risk uh, if they um, as great a risk of a revealing sensitive. Um, technical information to a foreign adversary if it got into their um, in their hands. One of the reasons why this is has always been a, 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 a difficult issue in the space industry is not that um, we believe that it's necessarily that dangerous for someone to see a, a, one of our rockets, for example. Um, But anything that can be used for a purpose that is positive and good can also be used in a very negative adversarial way as a weapon against us. So the intent for the use of the product isn't the controlling um, criteria. A lot of these, a lot of these vehicles and products are dual use. And if they're dual use, it means that they can be used against us. So the the, the government takes as as they should a very serious look at what could potentially be disclosed. And if it if it could uh, potentially harm uh, the U.S. as a national security issue, then there are certain steps that we um, can take uh, to comply with requirements to safeguard uh, uh, that risk. And it, just because an item appears on the munitions list doesn't mean that, oh, you can't talk about it to anyone else. It means that you have to get a license. You have to go to a, through a process so that those who understand the technology well can make an evaluation in in that particular context and uh, and either approve it or not approve it. Um, and there are always some various exceptions uh, to some of those as well. So just because it appears on an ammunitions list doesn't mean it's verboten. It just means you have to go through a process. And there are also uh, uh, rules for how you handle um, 
how you handle that kind of information, what can be seen and what um, safeguards that you need to take. And all of that is overseen um, uh, by the Department of State. So it's, um, it's a very rigorous process um, and one that we have to take very seriously here. Absolutely. I mentioned earlier that you are very well known internationally for your interpretation of space law, and I believe you're presenting <laughs> at the IAC in Paris. Um, and you're also on a lot of boards. Can you talk a little bit about what it is you're going to be presenting when you go to the IAC and, and what you're going to be discussing uh, and what you do on the boards for a lot of these groups? Well, so the, I have, if, if you've seen my CV, you've seen the long, long laundry list of, of papers that I've written and presented. And um, I think what you're talking about is I speak on a lot of panels. I do a lot of presentations um, on various areas of space law for many years. Um, I'm uh, one of the reasons we, we kind of know uh, how many space lawyers there are in the world is because they're all members of the International Institute of Space Law, of which um, I'm a member. And there are really only, gee, maybe on the order of 400 uh, in the world. And uh, I think I know almost all of them. So it's a relatively small world, but we're everywhere. And um, because there are so many of us and we're um, in we, what we do um, impacts others in other countries, we have a relatively tight network. And so the ISL, the International Institute of Space Law, is my primary organization in which I'm very active. I, um, as part of that, I'm on the uh, moot court committee. Um, uh, I'm a chairman to, and this is our our primary uh, um, activity every year at the IAC is presenting a moot court competition. It's internationally renowned, judged by three judges of the International uh, Court of Justice, and it's very prestigious. Um, it's also a lot of work. So I, I work on this all year, every year, and it is it gives me access to every space lawyer in the world. I have them you know, judging memorials for me or briefs, judging oral competitions all over Asia, Africa, South America, um, uh, North America, Europe. Um, and through this process, not only do I get to work with them, but I get to know all, at least all of the preeminent members very well. And so as a result, I, I serve on many of the boards that's, you know, and, uh, as you would if you're actively involved in the industry. Um, I've, uh, I've done panels for the ABA Forum on Space Law um, over the years and at the NSC, the National, uh, let me see, the National Space Council, I've forgotten exactly. Uh, um, anyway, a number a number of of space law organizations and conferences every year in Canada, and all my presentations have taken me to every 
country, uh, every continent in the world, and except for Antarctica, haven't been there yet. They need to catch up on space law by the sounds of things so that you get they to visit do. there as well. Yeah, there's a treaty that's that's specifically um, that that's the Antarctic Treaty that w- is very um, uh, critical. It was very critical in the development of the Outer Space Treaty because, in a lot of ways, how you handle um, ownership or the lack of ownership in resources and land in Antarctica among all the countries that want you know want that access is very similar to how we approached how to handle the resources and um, uh, uh, celestial bodies in space law as well. So Antarctica, pretty important. (laughs) What advice would you give to somebody who is interested in possibly pursuing a career in space law? Number one is probably the same for any other job, talk to an actual space lawyer, someone who is actually practicing in some capacity. There are lots of space lawyers that only that only practice space law as kind of an adjunct to teaching at a law school. Um, when I all the time that I was in LA, I taught uh, law school at uh, Loyola and I taught space law there after I got my Um, after I got my LLM, a lot of space lawyers are academicians um, that that teach at law at at, teach at teach law school, although that's not necessarily the only thing or even the main thing that they might teach. Um, But the, uh, the career path changes. It has changed relatively quickly in space law because more and more um, types of positions have opened up in space law that didn't previously exist even 10 years ago, uh, much less 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I was interested. So talking with someone who's involved in it now will ensure that you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. It is by no means easy now to get a space law job. I don't mean to to make it sound like, you know, everything's um, you know, roses now. If you want to be a space lawyer, everybody gets a job. It's still highly competitive, and not everybody gets a job. There are lots of space space lawyers or want to be space lawyers that work in other um, in other industries, and they're kind of biding their time for an opportunity. Um, and really, unless you're working in an area that is at least adjacent to space law, doing some kind of contract law or uh, working on a, you know, for a subcontractor of space entities, it's difficult to really keep abreast of everything that's going on in the industry. So it's very helpful if, um, if you identify a mentor or um, or you have a friend in the industry with whom you can can uh, keep up on on the status of the industry, and uh, you know the many many law schools now. I don't know if it's most, but many now do have courses on space law. I used to teach them, so um, uh, I know that that it's now an area of law that's recognized. I don't know if if it depends on the law school, um, the extent to which they 
they want to get too invested in that as an area of law beyond offering one course or a series of course, courses or a seminar. Definitely the easiest way for any law student to make that kind of determination is to just get involved in one of those courses, see what it's about. Um, it is fascinating whether or not you decide to make it a career. It is easily the best conversation at a cocktail party that you'll hear. You know, everybody wants to hear about space law, who owns the moon, you know, who get who gets to to mine the asteroids. What happens if they, you know, rope up an asteroid, can they tow it back to Earth? All kinds of of issues like this are have real life and legal analysis behind them. And I could talk all night about those kinds of things. So um, for me, if you've got that kind of interest, one of those classes will never go to waste. You know, it'll only just open your mind into what the whole deal is with space junk and space debris and why that's a problem, um, you know, or space resource mining, you know, the ice on the moon would be immediately harvestable by, uh, as fuel for, you know, other um, spacecraft to take off with, you know, just one sixth the gravity that they'd have to uh, devote to fuel uh, from the earth. So, you know, there are lots of, of fascinating um, subjects within space law that are, are openly debated right now. And um, so, you know, even if you decide not to make it a career, it can be an interest or, um, you know, an area that I think is always going to be uh, fascinating. I really appreciate your time, Melissa, and I could talk to you about it for a long time. If anybody would like to find out more about Melissa, you can go to our website, spaceportamerica.com forward slash team and read a bit about Melissa's background. And I'm sure you can find her on a lot of her panels that are on YouTube as well. Thank you very much for your time today, Melissa. Thank you, Alice. Bye bye. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.